Welcome, Middle-Earth Wanderers. I hope you've watched Rings of Power Episode 4, The Great Wave, already, because, spoiler alert, we are exploring the lore foundations for what we see in that episode. I give a big thank you to all of you who sent in questions. I will address all of those that I can today. And as you watch the next Rings of Power episode, please send me your questions. Use the links in the show notes to find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. I can't wait to hear what you ask about. Welcome! In the Lord of the Rings podcast, we wander the world of J.R.R. Tolkien by exploring the foundational epic stories from the deep past of Middle-earth. If you enjoyed Tolkien's books, or maybe Peter Jackson's movies, or perhaps you're excited for Amazon Studios' new series, The Rings of Power, and you want to dive deeper into the rich world of Middle-earth, then listen and subscribe. Bagovanian, fellow wanderers! First question, is there a relationship between the White Tree in Numenor and the White Tree in Gondor in Lord of the Rings? Yes, the White Tree in Numenor has a name, Nimloth. Okay, so we're going to trace the history and future of Nimloth. Stick with me for a minute. Nimloth was a seedling of a great tree from the land where the elves live in Valinor. This tree, in turn, was descended from Galathalion, a white tree that was shaped after the image of Telperion. Telperion was one of the two trees of Valinor which we saw in the first episode of Rings of Power. Telperion is the elder of the two trees, and gave off a silver light. At the end of Return of the King, Gandalf tells Aragorn that Nimloth, the white tree in Numenor, quote, was a seedling of Galthilion, and that was a fruit of Telperion of many names, eldest of trees. So Nimloth is a descendant of the eldest of trees, Telperion the silver. Now let's look at Nimloth's future. First, a prophecy by Muriel's father, Tarpalantir. He gave the prophecy that, quote, When the tree perished, then also would the line of kings come to its end. This is why the white tree is a symbol of royalty in Gondor, as best seen on Aragorn's armor. In Numenor's darkening days, Sauron convinces the Numenorians to cut down the tree and burn it. But before then, Isildur, Elendil's son, risks his life and saves the seed of Nimloth. That seed is planted and a new white tree begins to grow, eventually being planted in Gondor. There's a little more back and forth, but the white tree of Gondor that stands in the court of Minas Tirith is a direct descendant of Nimloth of Numenor. In the Council of Elrond in Fellowship, Elrond explains, quote, There in the courts of the king grew a white tree, from the seed of that tree which Isildur brought over the deep waters. And the seed of that tree before came from Eresea, and before that out of the uttermost west in the day before days when the world was young. For more on Telperion the Silver Tree and Nimloth the White Tree, listen to episodes 2 and 34 through 38. From Phil Monson on Instagram, thoughts on the evil sword hilt? Are orcs emotional? So the evil sword hilt has some connection with Sauron, seeing as how the sigil that Galadriel found is also on the hilt. The sword is activated somehow, or at least reacts, to blood. In a previous episode, we saw the blade starting to form from mist and flame. In this episode, Theo is able to form a complete sword. Also, the orcs revere the hilt, claiming that they found it and returning to Adar to report that it is in the tower. This evil sword is an invention of the Rings of Power show, but let's look for its inspiration in the lore. Throughout the Legendarium, we find plenty of famous swords, like Bilbo's Sting, Gandalf's Glamdring, Thorin's Orchist, not to mention Elindil's Narsil, which became Aragorn's Anduril. This sword, in particular, gets a cameo in the background about 30 seconds before Galadriel looks into the Palantir. 
But besides the One Ring, we don't find a lot of evil weapons that pass through the generations. Perhaps the closest parallel we can find are the swords of the Nazgul. When Frodo is on Weathertop and he puts on the One Ring, he sees the Nazgul clearly, and, quote, in their haggard hands were swords of steel. And the king of the Nazgul has, quote, in one hand a long sword, and in the other a knife. When Aragorn is examining the knife, we read, quote, the blade seemed to melt and vanished like a smoke in the air, leaving only the hilt in Strider's hand. In the movie, the blade dissolves into a black mist. In Rings of Power, we see the opposite. The hilt is solid, while the blade is reformed from blood, flame, and black mist. Now, I'm not saying that the hilt that Theo is holding is the Nazgul's knife that will later stab Frodo. But when Gandalf says to Frodo, quote, they tried to pierce your heart with a Morgul knife, notice Gandalf doesn't say the Morgul knife, as in there's only one. But it appears that there's a class of evil weapons called Morgul. Perhaps this sword that Theo has is the same type of weapon. Near the end of the episode, we hear that Adar demands that the Southlanders demand fealty to him. And Waldrig, the old man, explains to Theo that Sauron was, quote, a beautiful servant who was lost, but who will return? The starfall with the stranger is taken as a sign of Sauron's return. But still don't mistake that the stranger is Sauron. Plenty of theories still swarm around the stranger. Thel also asked if orcs are emotional. I assume he's referring to that scene where Adar laments the injured orc before killing him. Tolkien's orcs are actually a complicated and somewhat sophisticated race, even though they are usually portrayed as mindless drones. The orcs were originally elves, captured by Morgoth, and tortured and corrupted until all the light was driven out of them. The orcs have different clans, all with different traditions and cultures. I won't read the whole thing, but there's a long and illustrative conversation between two orcs on which Sam eavesdrops when he has taken the ring after Frodo is stabbed by Shelob. One orc is from Minas Morgul at the bottom of the pass, and the other from the tower at the top of the pass. This conversation shows a lot of differences and emotions among the orcs. For example, in describing the Nazgul, one orc says, quote, Those Nazgul give me the creeps, and they skin the body off you as soon as look at you, and leave you all cold in the dark on the other side. But he likes them. They're his favorites nowadays, so it's no use grumbling. And regarding the War of the Ring, one says, quote, But anyway, if it does go well, there should be a lot more room. What do you say? If we get a chance, you and me will slip off and set up somewhere on our own with a few trusty lads, somewhere where there's good loot nice and handy, and no big bosses. And the other responds, Ah, like the old times. So from those couple of examples, we see that the Orcs weren't fans of the Nazgul, and long for a time without war, where they could get away from their big bosses and go do their own looting. So, are they emotional? Somewhere deep down in their roots, I'm sure they were. Did they mourn their dead? I'm sure they did, though I can't think of a good example. If you know of one, send it my way. And notice the interplay of the orcs and the sun in this episode, particularly when Theo's friend is running from the village, trying to stay in the light as a cloud passes over. I covered that extensively in my past episode, so go check that out. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. You can be the hero of your own Marvel Comics adventure. Marvel Strike Force is an extraordinary mobile game, a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable Apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. 
And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary. That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now, back to wandering. Are dwarves always so secretive? From the dwarves' first interaction with the elves, they were, quote, secret and quick to resentment. An example of this is that the dwarves were willing to learn the elves' language, but not teach their own. Quote, the dwarves were swift to learn, and indeed were more willing to learn the elven tongue than to teach their own to those of an alien race. So by nature and custom, the dwarves were a secretive people, not quick to trust the outside races, but they were also good by nature, and often allied with elves and men when needed. We see through Elrond's eyes a dwarvish ritual of Disa singing to the rocks as a plea of mercy toward the miners. About this specific ritual, I have nothing for you, but I do have a description of dwarvish voices that comes from Carl Hostetter's book, The Nature of Middle-Earth. Tolkien left a small note which Carl describes as, quote, This note is found on two sides of a narrow strip of paper located with papers dating from about 1969. It is written in a very hasty hand in black fountain and ballpoint pen. The note reads in part, quote, It is false to make dwarves uncreative or poor linguists. They had great interest in languages, which was more or less dormant until they began to associate with other peoples, but they could not conceal their voices. Phonetically, they were acute and could pronounce learned languages well, but their voices were very deep in tone with laryngeal coloration, and they, among themselves, spoke in a laryngeal whisper. While on the subject of dwarves, the big revelation in this episode is the discovery of Mithril in Khazad-dûm, and I have been asked a few questions about that. First, some history. The Dorvish kingdom of Khazad-dûm was established way back in the first age of Middle-earth, and is actually the oldest and mightiest dwarf kingdom. The discovery of Mithril isn't clearly spelled out. In Appendix B of Return of the King, we find that, quote, Later some of the Noldor went to Eregion, upon the west of the Misty Mountains, and near to the west gate of Moria. This they did because they learned that Mithril had been discovered in Moria. By technical lore standards, this would have been about 750 of the Second Age. I love how the name for Mithril is derived, almost as if Elrond is trying to discover the metal's true name, and it glows in response. Durin calls it Grey Glitter, which makes sense, and attempts an elvish word, Mithraud, which could be translated as Noble Grey or Grey Metal. Elrond calls it Mithril, a word that combines two roots, Myth, meaning Grey, think of Gandalf the Grey's elvish name, Mithrandir, and Real, meaning Brilliance, think Silmaril or Andaril, Aragorn's sword. Mithril was a miracle metal. Gandalf described its qualities as, quote, It could be beaten like copper and polished like glass, and the dwarves could make of it a metal, light and yet harder than tempered steel. Its beauty was like to that of common silver, but the beauty of Mithril did not tarnish or grow dim. Mithril was very priceless, as Gandalf explained, quote, Its worth was ten times that of gold, and now it is beyond price, for little is left above ground. However, several key artifacts in Middle-earth contained Mithril. Here's a short list. The most famous object created from Mithril was Frodo's Mithril coat, which he received from Bilbo, who had received it from Thorin. The substance Ethildin was derived from Mithril, 
and with it Celebrimbor drew the symbols on the doors to the west gate of Khazad-dûm. The guards of the citadel in Minas Tirith wore helms that, quote, gleamed with a flame of silver, for they were indeed wrought of mithril, heirlooms from the glory of old days. This suggests to me that at least some mithril found its way all the way to either Numenor of old, or at least the kingdom that Elendil established in Middle-earth. The standard that Aragorn carried into battle, which Arwen made for him, had a symbol of a, quote, crown bright in the morning, for it was wrought of mithril and gold. The gates of Minas Tirith during Aragorn's reign were rebuilt with mithril and steel. But here's two objects made with mithril that connect back directly to the Rings of Power series. Galadriel's Ring of Power, Nenya, is the only Ring of Power to have been made from mithril. And, curiously enough, Elrond has a personal connection to mithril. He shares his father's story with Durin, how the Valar lifted him up to carry the evening star. And it's Bilbo who gives us a little detail about that event. Quote, a ship then knew they built for him, of mithril and of elven glass. This would have been at the end of the First Age, several hundred years before the dwarves discovered the only source for mithril in the Second Age at Khazad-dûm. But the Valar clearly knew and had access to mithril, and used it to craft Eärendil's sky-worthy ship. However, notice what's not on this list of mithril artifacts. Yes, we have armor, we have defensive structures, we have rings, and even divine ships but no weapons, no axes, no swords, not even arrowheads. Though clearly, weapons is what Durin IV is imagining when he says, quote, as weaponry, it would best our proudest blades. However, Mithril is the eventual downfall of Durin's folk. As Gandalf says in Fellowship, quote, even as Mithril was the foundation of their wealth, so also it was their destruction. They delved too greedily and too deep, and disturbed that from which they fled, Durin's bane. In Appendix A, the section called Durin's Folk, we get this explanation, quote, The dwarves delved deep at that time, seeking for Mithril. Thus they roused from sleep, or released from prison, a thing of terror that, flying from Thangorodrim, and laid hidden at the foundations of the earth since the coming of the host of the west, a Balrog of Morgoth. Durin was slain by it, and then the glory of Moria passed, and its people were destroyed or fled far away. Which leads to my last question from Eric Gongisto on Instagram. Will we see a Balrog in Season 1 with the Mithril subplot? This is a good question. If we read Tolkien's lore carefully, it's clear that the Balrog was released in the Third Age, during Sauron's reclusive rise to power when he was dwelling in Mirkwood. So, will the Rings of Power feature a Balrog? In one of their teasers, we seem to think so. But to do so would be a serious breach of the timeline, which I don't know if they're actually going to do that. Okay, one last note about Halbrand, the Southlander who washes up in Numenor with Galadriel. So many people have asked if there's a connection with Halbrand and Aragorn. From his looks to his storyline of being a reluctant exiled king, I can see the similarities. In fact, my wife actually can't stand his storyline because it's too much like Aragorn's. However, there is no connection between Halbrand and Aragorn. Halbrand is from the Southlands, one of the low men, whose ancestors had sworn fealty to Morgoth and fought on his side. Aragorn is descended from Elendil and Isildur, two solid Numenorean nobles, with no Southland blood in them. If Rings of Power wants to take Halbrand, a character of their own invention, and somehow weave him into Aragorn's ancestry, that would be a serious breach of lore, and a giant plot mistake, as the whole story of Aragorn and Gondor is the struggle to live up to the ideals of Numenor, and carry on the mighty traditions of the faithful men who were friends with elves and who revered the Valar and the one god, Iluvatar.
I hope you've enjoyed this background lore for the latest Rings of Episode number 4, The Great Wave. As you watch the next episode, number 5, please send me your questions. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and via email using the links in the show notes. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at Lore of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. <laughs>